0: Okay. I'm glad everybody could join us tonight. Glad to see all of you. So Shmot is the beginning of the story of the actual birthing of the nation of Israel. We have just finished with the telling of the families of Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov and all of the brothers. Now In the book of Shemot comes the story of the birth of the actual nation of Israel from these families. What's very interesting about the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus, is that this is a a story that it could be argued by some people that this is a very strictly Jewish story, but that's really not true. This is a story of redemption. This is a story that gives hope to all of the people of the world because... It is a picture of redemption not just for the Jewish people but the, the story of redemption of the Jewish people that is an example of the ultimate redemption for all the nations of the world. And even to the point of the way this begins, there are so many lessons here to the way this is laid out in this very first Parsha of the book of Exodus. Now, <clears throat> it starts out with the reading of the names of and that's what the word Shemot means, is names and these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Mitzrayim, every man and his household came with Yaakov Reuven, Shimon Levi, Yehuda Issachar, Zbulun Binyamin, Dan and Naphtali, God and Asher all the souls that descended from Yaakov were 70 souls and Yosef was already in Mitzrayim so first thing we have is it names these sons of Yaakov and it refers to the children that of the sons of Yaakov now we have an enumeration of all of these people who came down into Mitzrayim all of them who came with them Uh, when they came and it talks about the sons and it talks about there was one daughter there was one daughter Dina and then there was the daughter of Asher Sarah who was also named there was one other daughter that was born as they went through the gates of Nitzrayim and her name was Yochavet or Jacobet in English and this was the daughter of Levi and so in all it was Seventy souls. It's a very important point that it makes here in the fifth verse that it was seventy souls, because those seventy souls were were connected to the, or we, I should say, present tense are connected to the seventy root nations of the world. We have seventy names. We know who they are, and then when we look at in the uh, Parsha Noah. We read the names of those people, who, those men who fathered all the 70 nations. They were names, they weren't just numbers. This is an important point that it was names. It was names of these 70 souls that descended into Egypt, and it was names of the 70 root nations of the world. And they're linked to each other because Israel is a microcosm of all of the world. So these 70 souls are linked to the roots of the 70 nations. It's very important, the number 70. And in Hebrew, the letter that is um, 70 in value is ayin, And so it has to do with seeing. It's I. Your eye, iron The word I in English comes from is is uh, very close to that iron and an iron is drawn or, or is uh, its shape looks like an eye on its side you know facing up um, instead of sideways the way our eyes are sideways it's like facing up with the lashes to the top and so 70 is related to the souls of that descended into Egypt, related to the root souls of all of the nations, the root nations of the world. There are 70 princes, heavenly princes, in the court of heaven that are connected to each one of these 70 nations. There are 70 faces of the Torah. There are 70 names related to um, Jerusalem. 70 ways that jerusalem is beautiful it's just so many things that um views so many facets that the number 70 is connected with and so these 70 souls descended into egypt into mitzrayim and this is the beginning of when hashem is going to show us show all of the people of the world here is tyranny this is what tyranny looks like and here is my solution for tyranny and so he shows us redemption of all of mankind here through the nation of Israel and that's what this uh, microcosm of Israel being a microcosm of the world is supposed to be all about that we see the fate of the world Hashem's will for the world through how he relates to Israel Yosef died and all his brothers and all that generation so the last brother who actually did die was Levi Levi was 137 years old when he died and he was the last one who died and that was the, um, the beginning of when the Pharaoh rose up who did not know Yosef was after Levi died the sons of Israel were fruitful by reason of their numerous births they increased most abundantly and were ex- exceedingly strong and the land was filled with them now a new king arose up over Mitzrayim who knew nothing of Yosef now interestingly the um, there is an idea of this now we would say how in the world could he know nothing of Yosef if he was an Egyptian how could he have not known about Yosef so Rob Hirsch puts forth the idea that perhaps this new king that rose up was after a, um, a takeover a coup and he was foreign and he did not know Yosef. Or another idea is that this king was was the old king who did know Yosef, but then the people protested because of the Jews, and so he became like a king who did not know Yosef. Whichever is true, he began to treat the people of Israel in a different way. He said to his people Lo, the sons of Israel are a nation, too numerous and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal cleverly with them, lest they multiply. And then, if in the course of events there should be a war, they would join our enemies or fight against us themselves and move up from our land. So we see a kind of a contradicting idea here. First, he's afraid that they would. Rebel and join, against the, join with the enemies against the Egyptians, and then he says, or they might move away. So, having the people of Israel there was something that was advantageous, and he didn't want them to actually leave. But he was afraid that they might turn against the people, uh, turn against Egypt, and join their enemies. Now there really was not a reason for this kind of fear because by this time the people of Israel had been there for a while. They had been there since the uh, former generation had passed on and they were quite happy. In fact, the sages say that they had become assimilated into the population. Not, I mean they still lived in the land of Goshen but they were dressing like Egyptians they, they were becoming, there was this fear that they might just say they really enjoyed being in Egypt. But now the king of the land is going to make sure that doesn't happen by starting this anti-Semitic attitude toward them. And we can see here like a blueprint for tyrants. A blueprint for tyrants that has been followed over and over and over and the first thing they say is there is a certain people among us that seems to be the first phrase they say to start people raising their eyebrows and having suspicion and saying ah maybe they are going to side with our enemies maybe they are going to take our money from us maybe you know just Putting that doubt into the people's minds. And there's another reason for that. Because the Pharaoh was like other tyrants. The, Egypt was a society of castes. And the people, the main common people, really did not have freedom. We see this kind of idea today with um despotic countries with these rulers whose people are not free so what do they do they say oh all of your problems are the fault of those people over there and many times it is Israel or the Jews you know many times it is because it's a convenient um, target convenient target for their anger for their hatred for their fears and so it it gets the people's attention away from the tyrant's own mistreatment of them and makes them feel like they're more free if they can focus their discontent on this other people like oh it's their fault So that the tyrant doesn't have to be afraid of that discontent being aimed at him. And I'm taking care of your welfare by opposing this people that is a danger. And here's exactly what the pharaoh did. So he did it in a three-stage program. And the first stage was alienation. And it began with this planting this idea in the minds of the people of there is this people that we have to be afraid of so let's deal cleverly with them we see that again in the book of Ruth where Haman said to the king there is a certain people in your kingdom just planting this idea that maybe they weren't loyal Maybe they would side with the, with the king's enemies. Maybe they were a danger to the, to the kingdom. And so this was the first thing. And not only by planting this idea into the minds of the population, but also saying to the, to the Jews themselves, to Israel themselves, that they were not truly citizens. I mean, think about it in Germany the first thing that Hitler did against the Jews was to strip them of their citizenship they could not display the colors of the nation they were no longer citizens they could not enjoy the rights of citizenship and many of these people were veterans of World War One. they were very proud of being German but suddenly they were not considered German they were this foreign people that were suspected of maybe not being loyal to the state. And we have that blueprint right here in the first chapter of Shmot. And another thing that this starts putting in your mind, makes you start realizing, is that these kind of tyrants, one of their, one of the problems with the way they think one of the problems with the way they behave toward their own people and the reason that they need a target for the people's discontent is because the individual person is of no value. They're only valuable as a group, as the nation. But the right of the individual and the need of the individual is of no value no consequence and we see that like in communist countries they, they even have creeds that talk like that and so this is the kind of idea that was here in Egypt at this time and one of the ideas that comes forward and it's kind of subtle so you have to look for it but you're going to see that in the way that the Torah brings Words, how words are spelled, ideas that come across with the signs, everything, that the individual does matter. That Hashem is redeeming a nation, but he's also redeeming the individuals of that nation. So right from the very beginning, what do we see? The name of the of the parsha is Shmot. It's not numbers its names that each one of the 70 souls that descended into Egypt wasn't a number each one of those 70 souls was a name each one of those 70 roots that brought about the the nations of mankind wasn't a number it was a name those lists that we see in Parshat Noach and Parshat Shmot, or earlier than this, are enumerated by names, not numbers. They're names, their characters, and each one of them has an aspect that is very individual and very unique that causes, uh, has an effect in the world, has a reason for being, a purpose that is necessary for the whole. That if you didn't have that one aspect of the 70. you The whole world or the whole nation of Israel would be lacking. That you need that one part. Each one of those parts. That each one of those parts individually are very important. Each one of those souls. Each one of those people is very important. And this is a kind of thinking that was alien to Pharaoh. He looked at the people, his own people, as the masses. And he didn't see faces, and he certainly didn't see hear names. He just they were the masses, and they were for whatever use he had for them. And that's why basically they were expendable. They got run over, they got destroyed each individual person, it didn't matter. And we see this so often with uh, dictators. So this was the attitude of the pharaoh when he's setting up, up this prototype of tyranny that is going to be followed throughout um, history. Now what's very interesting is when we look at the four traditional enemies of Israel we see Babylon Greece Persia, Media and Rome we don't see Egypt now why is that? the reason that is is because we see in the history of those four empires that they were tyrants that they were um, there was the same kind of behavior that we see here in Shemot but Egypt was dealt with from beginning and to end we see in Egypt we see the end of the tyranny and we see redemption at the end from those other exiles we don't see that end Hashem did not deal with those nations in the same way as he dealt with the Egyptians he's already dealt with them so they're not considered one of our traditional enemies they're not one of that list of four but those other four enemies did have the same kind of follow that same blueprint that was set by the pharaoh so the next thing he did was he set treasure officials over them in order to afflict them with burdens. And so they built for Pharaoh's storage cities. Pitim. Petom, And Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them. The more they multiplied and spread. And they became sick of everything. Because of the presence of the sons of Israel. So the second thing that he did was. He put them into slavery. I mean. I'm sorry. He afflicted them and he made them slaves the 13th verse therefore the the mitzrites made slaves of the sons of Israel with crushing harshness so the third the second thing was the ill treatment of them they were taxed and then they were treated badly first they were made aliens and then they were enslaved and then the third thing that came along was the crushing harshness. Now first they were just like. Put into slave labor camps. Like in Germany. You saw the slave labor. They they followed these steps. It's so interesting to look at this. That this is almost like. Reading about Nazi Germany. At first it was the alien hood. And imposing taxes on them. They had no recourse. Because they weren't citizens. They could not protest. Then the next thing was. Well, you want to be good citizens, right? You want to serve the state, right? So you're going to come and you're going to work for us. And so the people of Israel went to work. They went to build these cities of Pitom and Rameses. Then the next thing that happened was the affliction, the crushing harshness. And this corresponds with when Hitler finally implemented the final solution. And this is what the Pharaoh did. They embittered their lives by means of hard labor with clay and with bricks, with all manner of work in the field. They embittered all their labors, which they made them perform with harshness. And the king of Mitzrayim spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other Pua. Now these midwives, were actually um, Yochevet and Miriam. Miriam was only a little girl. She was only like five years old. But she helped her mother and they were the midwives. And he is here going to start implementing his own final solution. And he said, whenever you deliver Hebrew women, observe the laboring womb if it is a son you shall kill him but if it is a daughter she may live but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Mitzrayim had commanded them but they kept the male children alive the king of Mitzrayim called for the midwives and said to them why have you done this thing to have kept the male children alive the midwives replied to Paro because the Hebrew women are not like Mitzray women, they are lively and they give birth, even before the midwives can come to them. And God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became exceedingly strong. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, and he set up homes for them, that Pharaoh commanded all the people, saying, Every son that is born you shall throw into the river and every daughter you shall allow to live so he enlisted now all of the people all of the people of Mitzrayim that if they would see a baby boy they were to throw him into the river they would throw him into the Nile and this was his own final solution that he was going to kill male children so what happened because of this the men of Israel decided that it would be better if they did not live with their wives if they did not bring children into the world because they couldn't bear the thought that their sons were going to be killed this way and so the men separated from their wives now the second chapter in the first verse says and there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife the daughter of Levi now he was he specifically went to a daughter the daughter of Levi he specifically went to her now this was Amram and the daughter of Levi was Yochevet they were already married and he had separated from her so they had two children already they had Miriam and they had Aaron Miriam was named Miriam because it was at the time of her birth that the slavery in Egypt became bitter but she had a spirit of prophecy from the time she was a little girl and so she knew that even though the slavery had become bitter that it was going that they were going to see redemption. And she was from the time she was a little girl always saying things prophetically that were encouraging. So she said to her own father what you're doing <coughs> is worse than what Pharaoh is doing. Because Pharaoh is killing the boys but by but with what you're doing what you're leading the other men of Israel to do the girls aren't being born either and so as a protest against Pharaoh's behavior against his actions uh, Amram went back to his wife and he married her again and she then gave birth to their their third child their second son the woman became a mother and bore a son when she saw that he was a good child she kept him hidden for three months now according to midrash she gave birth to him after six months she gave birth to him prematurely and then she was able to keep him hidden for three months and the mitzrites the Egyptians were watching watching because they knew that she was going to have a baby So they were watching, watching. Then she couldn't keep him hidden any longer. She therefore took for him a little chest of papyrus, coated it with proper clay and pitch, laid the child into it, and placed it among the reeds by the banks of the river. Now how interesting that the decree of the Pharaoh was that the baby boys had to be thrown into the river with the idea that they were going to be eaten by crocodiles and uh, or drowned and so this mother took her baby and she put him into the river and she followed this decree of the pharaoh in a slightly different way by putting him into this little chest or ark like it's in uh, Hebrew called Teva like the ark and she placed him in this little boat that she had made so he was in the river he was put into the river but rather than putting him into the river so that he would die as the pharaoh intended she put him into the river so that he would live she turned that bitter decree of the pharaoh around so that it would be for redemption His sister, Miriam, placed herself at a distance to know what would happen to him. So she's watching over him. She's sitting there watching over him. And Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe at the river and her handmaidens walked along the river's edge. She saw the little chest among the reeds and she sent her handmaiden there and had it fetched. And one of the Midrashim says that when she reached out that the Pharaoh's daughter actually reached out and her arm extended. And she was able to reach it. And this is like the long and outstretched arm of Hashem that brings the people or draws the people out of Egypt. So now the Pharaoh's daughter draws Moshe out of the river and she names him Moshe because she always wants him to know that he was drawn out of the river she opened it and saw the child and lo a crying boy she was moved to pity for him and said this is one of the hebrew's children and his sister said to pharaoh's daughter shall i go and call for you a nursing woman from among the hebrews to nurse the child for you and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And the young girl went and called the mother of the child. So you can see here, all just in the plain text, you can see all of the miracles of how Hashem worked, where Yochabit let go and she trusted Hashem as she put her baby into the river. She actually was doing the very thing that Pharaoh meant for harm And by letting go of him in this way and trusting that Hashem was going to take care of her baby, she ended up with the baby back with her under the protection of the princess. So Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse it for me. I will pay you wages. The woman took the child and nursed it. When the child had grown, she brought it to Pharaoh's daughter. And it be, and became a son to her. She called him Moshe. Because she said. I drew him from the water. There's this idea. That she wanted him to always know. That he had been drawn from the water. This is the reason that he was called Moshe. So that he would have. A compassion for people. Because this had been done for him. He had been saved from. Dying in the river. He had been drawn out of the river, that he would have a compassion for other people, and this says a lot about the character of the princess. And in fact, we're not—it's not said here. Her name is not told to us here, but her name, she actually converts, and her name is um, Batya, which means daughter of God. So she had this character of, of um, ethical behavior that was unusual in Egypt. And in fact, it was unusual to the point that she was even defying her father to do this. It came to pass in those days when Moshe had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked upon their burdens and he saw a Mitzrite man beating a Hebrew man one of his brethren so he's raised by the Pharaoh's daughter but he knows always knows that he is a Hebrew you know how in that um, the Ten Commandments how suddenly uh, what's his name that plays Moses um, Charlton Heston finds out that he's a one of the Hebrews and he's shocked and all this Because he thinks he's an Egyptian, that's not true to the biblical text. Moshe always knew he was a Hebrew. The Pharaoh's daughter did not keep it from him. She did not make him think that she was his natural mother. He turned this way and that, and when he saw that no one was there, he struck down the Midrith and hid him in the sand. Now, when it says that he turned this way and that, and he saw no one was there we can see this in a literal way that he saw nobody was looking and he hit him and then he hit hit his body in the sand but there's another way to look at this too in that Moshe was seeing into this man's life he was seeing is there going to be somebody of worth come from this man that he deserves to to live is there something in this man is a man when we look at this when we look at the way that this um is worded he looks into the man and he sees no one is there sees nothing of worth and so he struck him down and hit him in the sand he had the ability even then before the call at the burning bush (coughs) excuse me To see into this man. On the second day he went out and came upon two Hebrew men fighting. And he said to the one who was in the wrong. Why are you striking down your neighbor? He replied. Who has made you a man, a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you kill the Mitzrite? Moshe was frightened and said. So the matter is known. And these two guys who are fighting here are two guys that pop up later. Datan and Aviram. They're always making trouble. And even though, you know, Moshe is trying to help these two guys are, I mean, they turn around and, and they become informers. They run to the Pharaoh. And so Moshe is frightened and he says, so the matter is known. Pharaoh heard of the matter and and sought to kill Moshe Moshe fled from Pharaoh and settled down in the land of Midian there he sat down near the well and this is kind of an interesting story here how he sits down by the well he comes to the well and he sees these girls who are being harassed by um, other shepherds and it kind of makes us think about when Yaakov first got to uh, Haran and the shepherds are waiting there to move the stone. And, of course, Rachel comes along, and she's not able to water her sheep. And then Yaakov moves the stone for her, and he's her hero. Well, Moshe comes along, and he sees something very similar. The shepherds came and drove them away, The the girls. They drove them away, but Moshe stood up and helped them and watered their sheep. They came to their father, Ruel, and he said, How is it that you have come home so quickly today? They answered, A Mitzrite man, an Egyptian, rescued us from the hand of the shepherds. And he also drew all the water for us and watered the sheep. And he said to his daughters, And where is he now? Why did you leave the man? Invite him so he may have something to eat. Moshe decided to remain with the man, and he gave Moshe his daughter Zippor and she bore a son whom he called Gershom for he said I was a stranger in a foreign land it came to pass in the course of these many days that the king of Mitzrayim died and the sons of Israel sighed and cried out because of the bondage and their cry for help rose up to God on account of the bondage God heard the cry of distress. And he remembered his covenant with Avraham, with Yitzhak, and with Yaakov. And God saw the sons of Israel and took note of it. Now he had made a covenant with Avraham, with Yitzhak, and with Yaakov. He at the covenant between the pieces had told Avraham that his children would be slaves in a foreign land they would be foreign aliens and slaves in a foreign land they would be afflicted and this prophecy the count of this prophecy was supposed to be 400 years and we have a problem with that count unless we understand the wording of it unless we understand exactly how it's worded that it wasn't going to start that the counting was going to start as soon as Abraham had the son that was promised to him the son that was going to father this line that would go into slavery and this son was Yitzhak and when we look at the timeline from the birth of Yitzhak to the um, redemption from Egypt we can see that it is exactly 400 years From the year that Yitzhak is born to the year of the redemption from Egypt is exactly 400 years. And when Yitzhak is born, I mean he is is a living sacrifice. So he cannot go into slavery. But we notice that as opposed to Abraham, his relationship with the people around him isn't quite as... Um, amenable that the Philistines fill up his wells and he has to struggle with them over that that they make it real clear you're an alien among us you're not really one of us you're a sojourner here so there's that little bit of a hint there during the time of Yitzhak and then Yaakov himself goes away to a foreign land so it becomes a little bit more um, strong there with Yaakov that he goes into a foreign land and he works for Laban for twenty years for almost for slave la- slave wages. He becomes wealthy in the end, but in the beginning he is working for slave wages. and And there you have a picture of what's going to happen to his children in Egypt, just in that period of time with Levon that's why when we read the Haggadah during Passover that we refer to that time when Yaakov was working for Levon that he was working for slave wages and then when he went out he went out wealthy the people of Israel were working for slave wages in Egypt and then when they went out they went out with great wealth so it was a pattern And this was something that Hashem spoke to Abraham at the covenant between the pieces so you started to see the development of this um, prophecy the development of its fulfillment right from the very beginning just slowly slowly happening and hints of it happening and it culminated in Egypt So, now Hashem hears the cries of the people in um, Egypt, and he takes note of it. Meanwhile, Moshe had been tending the sheep of his father-in-law, Yitro, the priest of Midian. Now, Yitro had several names. First, we're introduced to him, and he's called Ruel. Ruel. But now, he's called Yitro, So, just later on, he's called Hovav. And so, he's called by various names. Most of the time, we know him by the name Yitro, And in fact, we have a Parsha named Yitro, And he was the priest of Midian. He was a very interesting person. He was somebody who was um, not only... He, a priest of one kind of idolatry he had been a priest of every kind of idol you could imagine he was a priest, he was an expert on all kinds of religion but then he found a monotheistic way of, of relating to Hashem he came to this and there is an idea that this is the reason that his daughters were harassed at the well because he had made himself an outcast he was going against the grain going against the tide of the society where he lived he had been a priest he had been a very respected person but then he started toying with these ideas of the oneness of Hashem and that made him not as accepted as he had been And so, it wasn't by chance that Moshe ended up in his house. And now, Moshe is married to his daughter. He has his uh, children. But, Yitro, in spite of he's toying with these ideas, hasn't completely gotten there yet. So, And we're going to see that in a minute. Meanwhile, Moshe had been tending the sheep of his father-in-law, Yitro, the priest of Midian. he he led the sheep along the pasture land and came to the mountain of God to Horev. and an angel appeared to him in the heart of a fire in the midst of a thorn bush and he saw and lo the thorn bush was on fire and the thorn bush was not consumed so notice this that it was the fire the whole thorn bush was not on fire The fire was in the midst of the thorn bush. And then in the midst of the fire was the angel of God. And so Moshe looked at that and he found it very interesting. He said, I want to go over there and look at this great sight. Why does the thorn bush not burn up? When God saw that he had gone there to see, God called to him from the middle of the bush and said, Moshe, Moshe, and he said, "Here I am." Now we're told by the sages that when Hashem spoke to him, said Moshe, Moshe, He spoke to him in the voice of his father. I don't know if all, of, if any of you have seen this movie called um, Contact, but in this movie, it was I found it very interesting that when she goes up and she's uh, in the spaceship and then she goes to this um, other planet she sees this being and the being appears to her in the form of her father and speaks to her in the form of her father and I think about this how sometimes when you'll see these movies they get this idea from Midrashim even and so the Midrash says that when, when Hashem spoke to Moshe he used the voice of his father in order that he would not be startled so that he would be able to um, be comforted and, and just listen it wouldn't scare him he said here am I he said do not step here take your shoes off your feet for the place upon which you are standing is is ground with holy destiny so this ground the holy destiny is going to be the ground upon which the people of Israel are going to come and hear the Torah are going to accept the Torah this is the destiny of this ground where Moshe is now standing he said he said I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Yitzhak, and the God of Yaakov. And Moshe hid his face, for he was afraid to look toward God. And God said, I have indeed seen the affliction of my people who are Mithraim, and I have heard their cries because of their slave drivers, for I have been aware of their sufferings. Now I have come down to rescue them from the hand of Mithraim, and bring them up from this land to a good and spacious land, a land that can flow with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and Jebusite. And lo, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the pressure which the Mitzrites are putting on them. Now therefore go, and I will send you to Pharaoh, per- to per- and bring my people, the sons of Israel, from, out from Mitzrayim. Now we notice this, where he's talking about the promise that he's going to bring the people of Israel to this good and spacious land. A land that can flow with milk and honey. It has the potential for this if the right spiritual aspect is present. Or it can be barren. And it can be desolate and wasteland. And we've seen this in our own lifetime. The difference between, well not our own lifetime, but within the last hundred years or so. It's been written about by people who are close to our lifetime. That there was a time, according to Mark Twain, and there was a time when the land of Israel was a wasteland. And people thought there will never be and nothing can ever come to this place again it's just a place to be relegated to imagination and dream to memory of what we read in the Bible but now look look how Israel flourishes and how it grows and it flows with milk and honey because there has been a shift spiritually the people of Israel are present in the land and there's been a shift and so this is what Hashem is saying to Moshe it has the potential it can flow with milk and honey it's a different land from the land of Egypt and so he says that he wants to send Moshe to Pharaoh because the time has come for the sons of Israel to come out of Mitzrayim and Moshe said to God Who am I that I should go to Paro and that I should bring the sons of Israel out from Mitzrayim? He said, Because I will be with you, precisely this will be the sign for you, that it is I who have sent you. If you will bring the people out from Mitzrayim, all of you will become servants of God upon this mountain. And it's what Hashem was saying to him too, is precisely this, because you have said, who am I to do this? This was exactly the attribute Hashem needed in a servant of His. Exactly that—somebody who was so humble that he thought, "I can never do something like that. Why are you want to, wanting to choose me? Surely there's somebody better for this job than me." And this was Moshe. He was very humble, but he had come into the world in the first place and had been preserved as a baby in a miraculous way so that he could fill this destiny in the world and Moshe said to God lo when I come to the sons of Israel and say to them the God of your fathers has sent me to you then they will say to me what is his name what shall I say to them then thereupon God said to Moshe Iheh asher Iheh I shall be that which I shall be. He did not say, this is erroneous, when people think this is what he said. He did not say, I am that I am. That is wrong. He did not say that. What he actually said is much, much more powerful. He said, I will be what I will be. There is no creature in heaven and earth who can ever make this statement. Ever. Because all creatures in heaven and earth are created with a specific per, a specific purpose of being. They have limitations. Hashem has no limitations. That's why he can say, I shall be what I shall be. Whatever I choose to be. Whatever I want to be. What is he doing here? this is the first time this name is ever revealed in the Torah this is the first time it's revealed because the nation of Israel is going to be birthed now we have had the family of Yaakov and Avraham Yitzhak and Yaakov we've had the development of this family as a clan, as a family as individuals now Israel is going to be birthed as a nation so, Hashem reveals this name. This name is the name associated with the Sphera of Keter, the Sphera that is the crown, the crown of the Sphera. And Keter has a numerical value of 620. All this time, the people of Israel have been basically Benei Noach. All the people of the world are B'nai Noach. And B'nai Noach are supposed to observe how many laws? Anybody? How many laws are B'nai Noach supposed to observe? Right. Seven. So, the numerical value of Keter is... 620 so what is 620 minus 7 613 right exactly and so when you have the 7 and you have the 613 you have the two ways this is one thing you have the two ways that Hashem's will is observed in the world by the two covenants that he has established or he's going to establish in the world that are associated with law so you have the Bnei covenant which is seven and you have the covenant with the people of Israel and he's getting ready we're getting ready with the redemption from Egypt for Israel to become a nation and he's going to make a covenant with them as a nation and it's associated with 613 laws so together he has you have 620 and this is the revelation of the will of Hashem in the world together B'nai Noach and B'nai Israel serving Hashem observing the mitzvot that are intended for them so this is the joining of these two covenants is the manifestation of the will of Hashem in the world so it's very interesting that at this point in history Hashem says to Moshe this name and this is the name that he is supposed to take to the people of Israel and he said this is what you shall say to the sons of Israel Ihiyeh has sent me to you and God further said to Moshe, "This is what you shall say to the sons of Israel: God. Now, uh, what is the word that He's actually using here? What is the name He's actually saying? It is Yudhevavche? It's a revelation of Yudhevavche in a special way. And then He says, Elohe Avraham the the God of your fathers Elohei Abitechem Elohei Abraham Elohei Yitzhak Elohei Yaakov so the God of Abraham he doesn't say Abraham, Yitzhak and Yaakov he says the God of Abraham the God of Yitzhak the God of Yaakov so in the ways that he revealed himself in all of the ways that he revealed himself to Abraham in all the ways with all the names that he revealed himself to Yitzhak in all the ways that he revealed himself to Yaakov in all these ways together with the revelation of his will in the world this is what he's saying this is my name and this is what you're going to go to the people of Israel and tell them. The full revelation of who Hashem is. This is who is sending you to them. This is my name for the distant future and this is my memorial for every generation. That every generation will remember Hashem in this way and then all of his fullness that is all of his fullness and all of the revelation that has come before that's now for Israel go and gather the elders of Israel and say to them God, the God of your fathers has appeared to me the God of Abraham Isaac and Yaakov in order to say I have remembered you and that which is being done to you in Mitzrayim therefore I said I will bring you up from the affliction of Mitzrayim to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land that can flow with milk and honey so he is telling him exactly what to say exactly what he's supposed to be revealing to them about Hashem himself and about the land where they are going to go About the potential of the land. Because all of it is bound up together. That it's the revelation of his will. To show them who he is. And then for them to come into their potential. Of that will. So that the land of Israel. Can flow. With milk and honey. And they will hearken to your voice. And then you and the elders of Israel will come to the king of Mitzray and you say to him now notice that he's not saying that Moshe is supposed to go alone not supposed to look like he's some kind of a crackpot or fanatic he's supposed to go with the elders of Israel that he is representing the nation of Israel and that they are behind him in saying let us go and you're supposed to say to Paro, God the God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness and offer up a sacrifice to God, our God. Now, when we look at this in Hebrew, where he says Elohei Ha he doesn't say just Ivrim, he says Ivrim. He says plural, and you have to see this in Hebrew to really under really get it, that the spelling is different. It says ayin vav resh yud yud mem, whereas normally it would be ayin vav resh yud mem for Hebrew for Hebrews for the plural of Hebrews. But he says it with two yuds. And just in the spelling here, we get an idea of the individual. The importance of the individual. That each individual, and this is something that Paro has no understanding of. The importance of the individual. And so Hashem is saying to Moshe, you are going to go with the elders. And he says, and each one of them are the Hebrews. Hebrewsim, you know, it's plural plural, that each one of them is the nation. Each one of them embodies himself as an individual, embodies the spirit of Hashem that defines the nation of Israel. And that's why we see these, this double Yud. That it's not just the Hebrews. As a nation, but it's the Hebrews as a nation of individual Hebrews. That each one of these elders embodies the spirit of Hashem, that he himself could stand there. That it doesn't just take Moshe, that he himself, each in, each one of those elders, embodies the spirit of Hashem, that he could stand there before Pharaoh himself. Is that Rob Samson, Raphael Hirsch, likens it to a tree, and he says, like a tree, where each part you could sprout a new tree from: the branches, the leaves, the the tr- part of the trunk, the root. You could get a new tree from this—an acorn. And that's the way the people of Israel, the Hebrews, was. And it was a new concept for, for Paro. Because he couldn't understand this kind of idea of the individual. The importance of the individual. And this is a message of Parshat Shemot. That is the example of what Hashem is saying is his Will. He says this right after he talks about his will. And you notice that, like I said, the seven and the six hundred thirteen. So he's saying this about the nation of Israel. Like it is an example of what a nation is supposed to be. You know, all the nations of the world are supposed to be made up of individuals. Who embody the spirit of Hashem to make them the nation themselves. All of the nations are supposed to have this idea of the importance of the individual, the sanctity of his well-being, of his of his welfare, and not just that he is expendable, that he's just part of the whole, and that he doesn't matter, and the the uh, the good of the many outweighs the good of the one, and all of these kind of things that we hear in tyrannical societies so this is really a revolutionary idea up until now we've had Nimrod we've had other kings who just ran over their people and that seemed to be the way things were all of a sudden you have Hashem forming a nation forming a nation that is going to be different from other nations that is going to have a different kind of uh, philosophy of life. A different way of looking at the world. And he's going to give them a Torah. The Torah. And the Torah has many laws. That are revolutionary in their idea. Now yes. The nations of the world up until now. Had the seven laws of Noah. But it was only those very righteous individuals who seemed to embrace it. And on national levels, the people weren't doing it. They just weren't getting it. They were—they had national religions of idolatry. They had national um, ideas of tyranny, and that seemed to be the way they thought things were supposed to go on the level of the nation. And the idea of the value of the individual was completely alien to them once they formed their nation so now Hashem is saying you're going to have a nation in which the individual is seen as valuable as part of the nation as embodying that spirit that makes up the specialness of the nation then he warns Moshe however I know that the king of Mitzrayim will not let you go not even by the threat of a mighty hand. Then I will stretch out my hand and strike down the Mitzrayim with all my miracles, which I will perform in its midst. After that, he will send you away. I shall then let Mitzrayim see that this people is worthy of my favor, so that it shall come to pass that when you go, You will not go empty handed just like Yaakov did not go out empty handed then every woman shall ask of her neighbor and of the woman living with her articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing and you shall put upon your sons and daughters and you shall cause Mitzrayim to strip herself bare partly because these people had worked as slaves for all this time with no pay and so, what's right? What's just? They should be paid. But not just that. These articles of silver and articles of gold, what's going to happen to this? What's going to happen to the material? What's going to happen to all of these things that the people are collecting? What is coming in the future where they're going to need this? Can anybody think ahead? What's coming? exactly the tabernacle and so they're going to be prepared and you notice that he doesn't say anything about the men he says let that every woman shall ask of her neighbor and we notice that later when the golden calf is made it says the men broke off their earrings and so on and made the golden calf but the women didn't do it And then when it talks about the building of the tabernacle, it talks about the women giving forth their gold and their silver and so on. Then the women came forth with their gifts. So here, it doesn't say anything about the men. It says the women are given these items from the Mitzrayim. Moshe replied and said, But see, they will not believe me and will not hearken to my voice, because they will say, God did not appear to you so what is he doing here when Moshe says but they're not going to believe me and God said to him what is in your hand he said a staff he said throw it on the ground he threw it on the ground and it turned into a serpent and Moshe fled from it and God said to Moshe put put out your hand and grasp it by its tail he put out his hand and grasped it and it turned into a staff in his hand so that they may believe that God the God of your fathers appeared to you the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Yaakov so the first thing that happened was on the one hand Boshe said they won't believe me so Hashem gives him a sign and the sign of a serpent is one thing for one thing it's a sign of a liar so Moshe has lied Hashem is saying you're lying about the people here but also he's giving him another um, lesson that a staff is a staff that he uses for um, supporting himself it's it's an item that he uses for his authority for herding the sheep And all of a sudden, this staff becomes exactly its opposite. Something that that strikes fear into his heart. That he runs from it. And then he grabs it by the tail and it turns back into a staff. Back into something that can support him. So Hashem is saying to him through this sign, See, I have the power to make something dependable or something revolting. I have the power to make it something that you can depend on or something that will be a scourge to you God further said to him please put your hand into your bosom he put his hand into his bosom and took it out and lo it was leprous like snow he said put your hand into your bosom again he put his hand into his bosom again and he took it out of his bosom and lo it became like the rest of his flesh again so when he put his hand into his bosom and it became leprous this is, leprosy is also a sign of uh, what we call Lashon Hara speaking evil, first he was given a sign of a serpent of, he was lying he wasn't telling the truth about the people and then the second one was he was speaking evil, saying they won't believe me but more than that another thing was just like the, um Hashem showed him that he could have power over this item that he used for support, whether it was support him or it wouldn't. He also had power over the hand that wielded the staff. It will come to pass, if they will not believe you, to hearken to the voice of the first sign, they will believe the voice of this latter sign. But it shall come to pass, they will not even believe these two signs and will not hearken to your voice that you shall take the waters of the river, pour it upon the land and the waters that you will take from the river will turn into blood upon the dry land so he sang, and if they won't listen to either one of these signs and interestingly we've been talking about the individual how important the individual is and the Hebrew word for sign here is Oat. Oat is also the word for a letter. That each letter of a word is significant. Sometimes we think, oh, it's just one letter. It's just doesn't it mean that much. But each letter has its own message. As we look at the letters of how words are spelled in Hebrew, it's very important that the letters themselves The letters that are chosen is like a code. The letters have their own message, each one of them. And so, each one of these signs had its own voice. And the voices of these signs were speaking to the different realms. First, the staff was talking about the surroundings of a person that Hashem had power over the surroundings of the person we're going to see this even with the plagues, how Hashem gives over this message those things that we depend on those things that we need to help us like the staff and then the hand turning leprous was him showing him that he had power over man himself over his body over his surroundings and over his body and then When he said that the waters would turn to blood. This is the waters from the Nile. And the Nile was an object that the Egyptians worshipped. And Hashem's message with this was. That I have power even over those things that man considers divine. Even over those things that man has deified. I have power over these things and Moshe said to God oh my Lord I am not a man of speech not from yesterday not from the day before not from the very first time that thou hast spoken to thy servant for I am heavy of speech and heavy of tongue and he thinks he has a legitimate argument but again Hashem chose him specifically for his shortcomings because he was humble, he didn't think that he was the right person, that made him the right person. Because he's a stutterer and a sammer, how much more so is this going to be a sign whenever this person that people know can't speak, all of a sudden is speaking clearly and strongly to them. How much more of a sign is this? But he said, no, I can't do it. And God said to him, who has made man's mouth? or who makes a man mute or deaf or seeing or blind is it not I God and now go I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say he said oh my lord please send thy message through the one whom thou wilt yet have to send then the anger of God kindled against Moshe and he said now let's just think about this for a moment when Hashem is telling us to do something. We get a we get a we get a message here ourselves that when Hashem is laying something on our hearts that we're supposed to do. Yes, He can choose somebody else. Yes, He can send somebody else. But He's put that. He's called us to do that. He's put that in our hearts to do that. He has sent our souls into the world and prepared us for that specific task and this is the message we get here with this that when he he means for us to do it yes he could have someone else do it but we're the ones that he prepared for that and this is what he was trying to tell Moshe that he was the one he was the vessel for this job that he had for this mission but nevertheless he said Is not Aaron your brother the Levite I know that he will be glad he will gladly speak Behold he is coming to meet you he will see you and he will be glad in his heart You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what you shall do he shall speak to the people on your behalf and it shall come to pass that he will become a mouth for you and you shall be to him as God now later we see when Hashem is instructing another prophet that he tells him if I tell you to do to give a message and you fail to do it then the responsibility of the people failings Will be on your head because you did not do what I sent you to do. But here he is telling Moshe that he's going to let Aaron be his spokesperson, he's going to give him that, and he will be to him as God because he is the one who's actually going to hear from God. And you shall take into your hand this staff which you are to perform with which you are to perform the signs Moshe went to return to Yitro this is another name here his father-in-law and said to him I would like to go and return to my brethren in Mitzrayim to see whether they are still alive Yitro said to Moshe go toward peace and God said to Moshe and Midian go return to Mitzrayim for all the men who sought your life have died so Moshe doesn't just say to himself okay well God told me to go and so I'm going to go first he goes and he, and he excuses himself from the house of Yitro he tells him that he needs to go but he basically is asking his, his permission his leave and so Yitro blesses him that he shall go toward peace which is a very interesting way of putting that that he will, he will come into peace that he won't just go in peace that he, but he's going to go toward peace and Moshe took his wife and his sons he has two sons placed them on the donkey and returned to the land of Mitzrayim Moshe took the staff of God into his hand God said to Moshe when you go back to Mitzrayim see all the convincing wonders that I have placed into your hand you shall perform them before Pharaoh and I shall harden his heart and he will not let the people go until you will say to Pharaoh this is what God has said Israel is my son my firstborn and I I have told you let my son go so that he may worship me but you have refused to let him go I will therefore kill your own son your own firstborn so he's showing him that this is going to be the final plague and Pharaoh's not going to relent until the very end and it came to pass on the way at the lodging place that God confronted him and considered it better that he should die And Sipporah took a fragment of rock, cut off her son's foreskin and cast it at his feet and said, because you have become wedded to the death sentence or you have become a bridegroom of blood on my account. So the danger withdrew from him and she said, wedded to the death penalty for all future uh, circumcisions. Now, this is a very on the surface, this sounds like a very strange um, part of the story that's just like all of a sudden stuck in here that Hashem calls Moshe to go on this mission and it makes it almost sound like he's the only one who could do it you know he's so adamant that it has to be him and then on the way all of a sudden says that he considered it better that he should die all of a sudden so what's going on what happened once Moshe's first son remember we were talking earlier about Yitro Yitro was a priest of Midian he was a pagan priest and so he had made a, an agreement with Moshe that and the first son that would be born would not be circumcised he would be his he would be Yitro's and so and then the the next one Eliezer would be I mean he could be Moshe and so here they are along the way and the angel confronts Moshe how can you go to my people how can you go to my people that I'm calling into the Torah when you haven't done the most basic thing of the covenant you have not circumcised your own son and Sipora sees this she realizes that for the sake of her family because of his love for her because of his wanting to have peace with her father that he had not done this very basic thing it's really her fault it's her fault it's her father's fault and so she is the one who quickly goes to remedy it and she realizes that's what she's saying here when she says death sentence that it is the death sentence that he would have been killed for this and so she rushes to remedy this and she herself circumcises her son it's a very interesting account right here that everything has to be in accordance with the law that even the leader can't be especially the leader cannot be exempt from any of these details that he has to be circumspect about his own life and also his wife that she also has to be in line with this with the covenant with the details of the covenant that she has to be in line with it and it was something extraordinarily foreign to her but she understood it from the circumcision of the second son that Moshe did do but here he is with the first one and it was a problem and God said to Aaron go meet and then all of a sudden we're finished with that story and we jump to Aaron now so it was just a few verses just to let us have a little peek at what was going on there and then that was finished and then right after that actually Moshe sends her and the boys back to Yitro. Because what's going to happen in Egypt is going to really be difficult. And so he sends her back to Yitro. And later we see in Parshad Yitro he brings her and the boys back to Moshe after they're in the wilderness. But he's but she's not going to be with him through this whole ordeal. The whole idea of her being with him up until now was so that the older son would be circumcised whether he's with Moshe or he's over in in Midian with his mother regardless he had to be circumcised so the idea of her being with Moshe at this point it was important that she be there but then after this after she had finished with this It was enough, and she could go back. And he sends her back. God said to Aaron, Go toward the wilderness to meet Moshe. He went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moshe told Aaron all the words of God which he had sent him, and all the signs which he had instructed him to perform. Moshe and Aaron went, and they gathered all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron uttered the words, which God had spoken to Moshe, and he performed the signs before the eyes of the people. And notice that it was Moshe told Aaron, and Aaron spoke the words, and Aaron performed the signs. The people trusted, and they heard that God had remembered the sons of Israel, that he had seen their affliction. And they bowed their heads and cast themselves down. Afterwards, Moshe came. Moshe and Aaron came and said to Paro, This is what God, the God of Israel, has said. Let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival for me in the wilderness. Paro replied, who is God that I should hearken to his voice and let Israel go? I do not know God and moreover I will not let Israel go. And so Moshe is saying to Paro Hashem the Yud Hei and Paro has, a, has his magicians have books with all the names of gods from all over the world and they look and they say uh, I don't know who this is. His name's not listed here, so it's totally alien to Paro. And the idea of going to, out to the wilderness to worship Hashem is totally alien because in the idolatrous world, the idol is supposed to uh, conform to the person's needs. He's supposed to conform to his Way. Like the, the God is made in the person's image or in his imagination. And this idea of obeying Hashem, going out into the wilderness, was like, well, you don't have to do that. Paro had no concept of how to worship the true God. Thereupon they said, the God of the Hebrews. Now, here we see that Hebrews is spelled with one Yud. Has been proclaimed over us. Please let us go on a three day journey into the wilderness. And offer sacrifices to God, our God. Yud hei Elochenu. Otherwise he may strike us with a plague or with a sword. And the king of Mitzrayim said to them, Why do you, Moshe and Aaron, want to make the people break loose from their work? Go back to the burdens of your calling. So he's like, oh, these old men, what are they bothering me for? They're just wanting to make these people lazy. Finally, Paru said, and see, another thing that he doesn't want is, he doesn't want the rest of the people of Egypt given ideas about taking a vacation no way the whole social structure will break down if people stop working and so he's no way I'm not putting ideas in people's heads finally Pyro said see the population of the land is now increased and you want to take a holiday from the burdens of their calling he's saying no we're not taking vacations here you people are lazy I don't want to give people ideas that they can be lazy. On that same day, Paro commanded the officers in charge of the people and their taskmasters as follows. You shall no longer give the people straw to prepare bricks as you did yesterday and the day before. Let them go and gather themselves stubble for straw. And you shall impose upon them the same quota of bricks that they made yesterday and the day before. You shall not reduce it. For they are lazy. That's why they cry. We want to go. We want to offer sacrifices to our God. See he was just saying. They just want to take a break from the work. They're just trying to trick me. And I'm going to be more clever than they are. Like he was dealing cleverly with them. And also you know this is a new pharaoh. He's not the one who had impose the slavery. But he had become a national institution. That yes we have these slaves and our new ruler is going to inherit this national institution of the slavery of the people of Israel. So he thinks this is the way it's supposed to be. That's the natural order of the social um, structure. The work must weigh heavily upon the men so that they will be fully occupied with it and not dabble in useless things. So in his mind, the idea of the common people going to worship Hashem was useless. The officers in charge of the people and their taskmasters went out and said to the people, This is what Paro has said, I will not give you straw. Go yourselves, get yourself straw, wherever you can find it, because none of your work shall be reduced. So then they thought, okay, um, part of the people can go gather straw and part of the people will stay and make bricks so that we can keep this going and um, have our quota. And the people scattered all over the land of Egypt to look for stubble instead of straw. But the officers in charge pressed them and said, complete your work. The daily fixed amount each day as it was when you still received straw. So here all of a sudden... They're saying each individual. Now they're seeing them as individuals and not as a unit. They would work as a unit where part of them could go gather straw and part of them could make bricks. But all of a sudden now, now they're seeing them as individuals and they're saying, no, you as an individual have to go get straw and have to make your quota of bricks. You can't work together to do it. All of a sudden, in this case... And the taskmasters of the sons of Israel, whom the Pharaoh's officers in charge had set over them, were beaten with the words, Why have you not completed your fixed amount of brick making both yesterday and today as you did yesterday and the day before? So it was the taskmasters first, the ones who were over the laborers, who were getting the beating for their people and the taskmasters of the sons of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh why are you doing this to your slaves straw is not given to your slaves and they tell us make bricks so your slaves are struck down and your people must sin against us he said you're lazy lazy that is why you say we want to go we want to offer sacrifices to God and now go do your work and straw will not be given to you and you must deliver your quota of bricks so the work was crushing. Nobody could take any kind of pride in this kind of work because it was always calculated to be much more than they could physically handle. And then they were accused of being lazy. It was just crushing them down, crushing them down physically, it was crushing them down morally, and that was the whole idea. When they came away from Pharaoh, they stepped up to Moshe and Aaron, who were waiting for them, and they said to them, May God look down upon you and judge, because you have brought us into a foul odor in the eyes of Pharaoh and his servant, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moshe returned to God and said, My Lord, for what purpose hast thou made misfortune and lot of this people? Why didst thou send me of all men? And ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he has abused the people even more. Thou hast not rescued thy people even from this. And God said to Moshe, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For by a strong hand will he let them go. Indeed, by a strong hand will he drive them out of this land. So just as Pharaoh is crushing the people down and crushing them, Hashem is getting ready to crush Pharaoh. And he's going to push him and push him so that what's really in Pharaoh is going to come out. What he truly is is going to come out. And this is also a lesson for us how sometimes adversity is crushing but what's actually happening if we can understand it is that Hashem is pushing us so that what's really in us can come out for good, for bad so that if it's bad it's something that we have to deal with so that we can give it up to Hashem we can conform it and this is something we see with Pharaoh from the very beginning to the very end of the story that Hashem is dealing with him and dealing with him and dealing with him until it's at the very end and he says and now he's going to be judged but first he does away with all of his pretenses all of his saying oh I'll let you go and then he changes his mind all of that is going to deal with him he's going to push him and push him until he can say alright that's it and he, then he can judge him and in a way people would say but Hashem said he was going to harden his heart. And he hardens Pharaoh's heart. So how can that be fair when he judges him at the end? But what is really going on? Is he's pushing him so that what's really in his heart is what's going to come out. He already knows Pharaoh. But he's pushing him so that he can show the world what and who he really is. Himself. It's not Hashem making him something he's not, but it's Hashem pushing him to show what he really is. Does anybody have any questions about this, Parsha? Moshe killed the Egyptian with the name of Hashem. you know how Moshe knew the name of Hashem? Okay. <clears throat> now remember that he had lived in the house of his mother when he was small. And so he still did have a relationship with his family. Um, at the burning bush he was given another name of Hashem the Yihye um, name was a different name but he used the four letter name of Hashem which was known to the people of Israel and um, he had this power according to Rashi as you say he did know the name and he knew the power of the name and how to use it so and that's another thing about this when he when he looked you know he had that power of being able to look into the egyptian look into his future so there was a spiritual power that moshe already had he wasn't just some guy that uh, didn't know anything about hashem until the burning bush and that's a very important thing for us to remember so it's, it's good that you brought that point out when god said he wanted the people to go to the wilderness and take with them silver and gold from their neighbors there was not intention for them to return it seems inconsistent with the law that says they're not to steal well like I said um, they had not been paid for their work for the Egyptians and so I know that there was that point made in uh, the Talmud actually that there was a court case about this, that the Egyptians said that the people of Israel stole all of this gold and silver and that they owed them back this gold and silver. And, um, and then the, the, the one who argued the case for the people of Israel came up with um, a figure of how much Egypt owed the people of Israel for their slave labor. And then the Egyptians did not come back into court. Many feel that Moshe was Mashiach. I feel he was. And he was. He was an aspect, a spark of Mashiach. He was a manifestation of Mashiach. We also saw that, um, that Noah was a manifestation of Mashiach as well. And in Noah, we can see that there were the two ideas of Mashiach. There was the idea of Mashiach, if people would repent, that he would be the comforter. And then there was the idea of Mashiach of, and if they don't, there's going to be this catastrophic destruction. And so we saw that with Noah. And with Moshe, there's the idea of, it's the redemption of of coming out, of coming to a new relationship with Hashem a different aspect of Mashiach so we see all of these different manifestations of Mashiach Um, King David was a manifestation of Mashiach too so as we go through biblical text we can see these different ways that the spirit of Mashiach came into the world and how it manifested in different ways yes And Moshe is a really good example of Mashiach because we see him develop, his character develop through the whole story. How at the burning bush, I mean before he flees from Egypt, he's one way. At the burning bush, he develops a different way. And then as we go through the telling of the story, how Moshe himself develops. How when he goes up into Sinai and he comes down he changes we see all of these changes in him and, um, and that's also very interesting especially when we think about him being the spark of Mashiach it's a very interesting thing how that also develops in a person Moses had two encounters with an angel from God was it the same angel? Um, well there was the angel in the burning bush and then the angel that came to kill him um, nope it would not have been the same angel um, there's the idea also that for each mission Hashem has to, to create a different angel or he, there's that idea but obviously that those two, I, those two missions were so different that we can safely say they weren't the same angel but that's a really good question when um, the angels came to tell Abraham about the um, destruction of Sodom we see that also how one angel told him and then the two went down and then how that developed too that it was the different angels that did different things you see that from midrash one told lot about the destruction coming and then the other one actually enacted the destruction Well, that's wonderful. I mean, I'm very happy to answer your questions. (laughs) We hear so much about angels these days the Torah doesn't seem to relate to angels as people nowadays think of them and that's very true there has developed like an angel cult and people seem to even worship angels without them realizing that that's what they're doing it's it's not a good thing all these little angel statues and stuff are pretty but um It's not a good thing. People act like each of us have their own personal angel well Hashem does send his angels to um, to protect us to do things for us and so on that is true but one of the things that we, we make a mistake about if we put too much emphasis we can end up worshipping the messenger rather than Hashem himself the king and that is the danger of putting too much emphasis on angels so we have to really be careful of that was Moshe looking for a different name for Hashem at the burning bush? Um, you know that is a good question When he was saying to Hashem, What shall I say your name is? That is really a good question. Um, I think that he was just wanting to have straight from Hashem what to tell the people about who God was. And then. Hashem gave him this different name that was going to be specifically linked to his will for the nation. Right. Okay, so next week we're going to continue the saga with Ba'era.
1: Let me just and thank you for.